Hello, and welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the north on the Great Turtle Island. Today on the show, we have a feature interview with Paul Johannes. Paul is from the Green Space Alliance of Canada's capital. He's here to tell us about why green space is important. The Green Space Alliance of Canada's capital works to protect the disappearing green spaces across both Ottawa and Gatineau in order to better the lives of the people who live here. And Emma Williams, our science editor, is in conversation with Dr. Tuan Bowie. Dr. Bowie studies zebrafish in an effort to better understand the spinal cord. Dr. Bowie and his team of researchers use the zebrafish as a means to figure out basic movements so that one day, just maybe, they will have a better way to treat people with spinal cord injuries. But first, it's time for headlines. Today, reading headlines, we have the Fulcrum Sports Editor, Jasmine McKnight, and the Fulcrum's Arts Editor, Zofka Zvek. Welcome to the broadcast. Thousands of refugees fleeing from conflict zones are stranded between two nations, stuck at the border between Belarus and Poland. Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia have all seen surges in the amount of people seeking refuge, mostly from the Middle East and Asia. Poland has experienced the most arrivals. Now, as temperatures begin to drop, so do the chances of survival as the deaths begin to pile up. Now the European Union is accusing the authoritarian leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, of orchestrating the problem. Many migrants have described Belarusian authorities seizing their phones and pushing them towards the border fence, being forced to enter the EU illegally. Poland's Prime Minister, Mateusz Morawiecki, said that while Belarus's Lukashenko was orchestrating the crisis, Vladimir Putin was the real mastermind in Moscow. The University of Ottawa's Committee on Academic Freedom released its report on November 4th. The committee, headed by retired Justice Michel Basterash, calls on the U of O administration to unequivocally reaffirm its commitment to academic freedom and freedom of expression, and that it clarify its rights and obligations as an educational institution. The committee says it is against institutional censorship that compromises the dissemination of knowledge or is motivated by the fear of public repudiation. The committee also recommended the creation of a standing committee to address issues of academic freedom and freedom of expression at the university. This angered student leaders at the university who say the report emboldens academics to use racial slurs such as the N-word. Tim Gulliver, the president of the Undergraduate Student Union said in a statement that students at the U of O deserve to receive their education in a dignified environment, free from discrimination. Daniel Ortega just won the Nicaraguan general election in a landslide victory. With at least 76% of the vote, the election result should come as no surprise. The result of the election was known months ago when, on June 2nd, police appeared at the home of his main political rival, Christiana Chamorro, and placed her under house arrest for alleged money laundering. In the following days and weeks, there was a series of detentions to other presidential hopefuls, seven in total, including a retired journalist who was in his 70s. He was arrested three hours after announcing he was interested in running in the election. 
This is Ortega's fourth term as president. The University of Ottawa has launched an interdisciplinary center for black health. This center is the first of its kind in Canada and is a big step in the breaking down of barriers to equity for the diverse black communities across Canada. The center will feature researchers from five different facilities of the University of Ottawa, five research institutes from hospitals affiliated with the university, and five research chairs. Each of these experts will be heading a specific research axis in black health. These five research axes make up the ICBH, prevention and management of chronic disease, infectious diseases, mental health and substance use, population and public health, child and adolescent health. Will electric cars save our planet? While there is no doubt a future away from fossil fuels can provide a greener way of life, some of the costs associated with going green may come at a very different cost. The Guardian reports that in order to power electric batteries, miners in the Democratic Republic of Congo are being treated like slaves to mine cobalt in dangerous working conditions for poor wages. Over the last 15 years, Chinese companies have begun to enter the mining business and have been buying out North American and European companies. They now control the majority of cobalt and copper mines in the southern DRC. Tesla, Volkswagen, Volvo, Renault, and Mercedes-Benz have all been linked to the supply chain through the Chinese mining companies. Looking forward to next week, the University of Ottawa Students' Union will be holding its Fall General Assembly on Monday. Motions to be voted on by students at the assembly include the future recognition of co-op students as members of UOSU during their work terms, allowing part-time students to be employed full-time by UOSU, and moving the UOSU general elections to earlier dates in the winter semester, among others. However, the motion that has made the biggest splash is a proposed increase in executive salaries from $31,000 to $34,000. The event will get going at 7 p.m., Quorum is 75 voting members. This week, Big Bird ruffled the feathers of some Republicans when he announced that he had been vaccinated against COVID-19. While President Joe Biden and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, offered gratitude and their thanks. Senator Ted Cruz, a Republican from Texas, decried Big Bird's tweet as government propaganda. While many other Republicans echoed Cruz's sentiments, many were quick to point out that over his years on television, Big Bird has been vaccinated several times, including in 1972 when he was vaccinated against the measles. The Green Space Alliance of Canada's capital works with community organizations across Ottawa Gatineau to preserve and enhance natural areas and green space across the National Capital Region. They are advocates in the fight to protect and restore green space from parks and shoreline to trees, local lakes, and creeks. Paul Johannes is the chair of the board for the Green Space Alliance of Canada's Capital, and he joins me now. So, Paul, thanks for taking the time to meet with me. I was just wondering, maybe we could start off with, if you could tell me about the Green Space Alliance. Sure. So the Green Space Alliance of Canada's Capital, which is our full name, uh, was established around 1997. Really started with uh, members of a few community associations in the southeast part of Ottawa. 
wanting to work together to protect some local green space around Riverside Drive and uh, Alta Vista, sort of that area there. And then it just kind of persisted and grew and uh, stayed together through uh, thick and thin. And so here we are, uh, however many years later, 24 years later, I guess, uh, still working to protect and preserve green space. So it's an all-volunteer, not-for-profit, incorporated uh, body under federal law. And uh, our job is basically advocacy. Uh, to try and preserve and protect green space in Ottawa Gatineau. So we call, we'll cover both sides of the river. We've got lots of valuable green space both sides, and we all benefit from it regionally. So that's the scope of our action. And so this work, as you said, in 1997, that began before the city got amalgamated. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. So h- how has... Uh, Things. How have things changed since uh, your early beginnings to where you are now? Well, you know, quite a bit, quite dramatically, really. Like one thing is that the city became much, much, much larger, including large rural areas that you know weren't part of the city before, um, and so that brought into our scope, you know, more preservation protection of green space in the rural area. Because in a sense, now the largest piece of green space for Ottawa, the city of Ottawa, is the rural part of Ottawa. Um, And so in a way, that's what kind of uh, also triggered these rounds of urban expansion, which for every new official plan becomes an issue, uh, or every revision of the existing official plan becomes an issue. Now that we have this rural territory that is within Ottawa, the city of Ottawa's administrative purview, um, there's always the opportunity to expand the urban area into the rural area. So that then becomes a real important battle line for us almost every five years. You know, it's one of the, again, and, and but really just one of the perspectives, not that we're, you know, anti-development in any specific way. It's just that we're pro-protecting green space. And and like I said, the, one of the, the biggest, for sure, by area, and also I'm sure by ecological services provided, a uh, piece of green space in Ottawa is rural Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Now, why is green space important? Well, I think, you know, I think when it started, it was more rooted kind of, a, I, well, it really was rooted in, in an ecology view of the world, you know, I think, uh, just for the intrinsic uh, benefits and beauty of green space. And it had just attracted that sort of green uh, environmentalist kind of outlook person to be to get involved, uh, and almost you know it's it, it, almost in every case the people who get involved are people who uh, have had the experience of either a loss or a near loss of green space that they valued very much either near their home or near uh, you know so in, in the in the general area where they lived, and. Uh, that experience sort of got them thinking, geez, we, we, we need to get together and stay together to work to protect this more. But then over the last, I, I, I don't know, maybe 10 years, certainly over the last five years, uh, climate change has become kind of another huge uh, issue in which green space fits. You know, green space plays a valuable role in terms of both mitigation of climate change and also adaptation to climate change. So it's kind of bolstered the perception and the reality of the value of green space. It's no longer just an aesthetic or our you know, general environmental thing. It's actually a specific 
benefit providing critical resource for us to preserve and protect in the context of climate change. Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, the tree canopy. What does that mean exactly when you hear a tree canopy? Okay, so so we thought about green space, you know, try to figure it out, like, what is green space, right? I mean, I joined your green space. I was, I, I've been in your organization for seven or eight years now, so I, I'm not one of the original, although we still have people from the origins as part of the organization, still as active members. Um, but so green space, basically, first off, it's, you know, anything green, anything that photosynthesizes, we're interested in, you know, like we want to preserve it. And so it doesn't matter whether it's a surface green space where you've got ground cover, you've got shrubbery, you've got undergrowth, you've got all that manner of green space. That's green space as well. So a, a meadow somewhere uh, within the NCC's property, that's a big piece of green space. We'd like to preserve it. You know, the, 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 the experimental farm, huge piece of green space in the middle of the city. You know, it's got trees, but it's mostly got fields, right? That's what it is. But it's green and it's important in terms of its cooling uh, function and, and, and uh, carbon capture, carbon sequestration, uh, oxygen create, you know, the whole gamut of things that it does. So so that's kind of the, 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 the surface green space that we're really concerned about protecting. But really, we also have this green space that exists like, you know, 20 feet, 25 feet above the surface. And that's the tree canopy. Of course, the tree canopy belongs to trees that are planted in the ground. And so, the, the, you know, they're part of that terrestrial green space as well. But the measurement of the, of the, of the shade that they provide, the, the valuable service that they provide through shade uh, is really the measurement of the, of the canopy. And so, so not every tree contributes that, you know, to the canopy. Every tree contributes something to the benefits that are provided by trees, but only really, you know, large, mature, large canopy trees provide that additional benefit, that, that shading, that cover. And so, uh, so measuring that basically from aerial photography, looking down and looking, you know, basically just that area coverage of canopy cover over the ground, you know, over the area, the denominator being the ground. That's that's the canopy cover that we're concerned about. That I mean, that's the measure we concerned uh, that we're concerned about, and that's the that's the coverage we're looking to preserve. Now, that's preserved through preserve, you know, saving the trees, of course. You know, like, so it's connected, but it's a different measurement. It's so so. For example, we have uh, in the official plan, we have two access to green space kind of measurements, targets, and goals that are uh, embedded in, in now really truly embedded in the policies of the new official plan. One is access to green space within X minutes of walk from your residence. And so that, you know, that we would measure on the basis of this terrestrial green space, you know, like actual areas that we can say, okay, that's, that's a park. It covers this much acreage. That's a piece of green space. It counts in the measurement of access to green space. But as a separate measurement and a separate target, there's every resident should have access to canopy cover. So that's a, like it's that's an it's another aspect of green space measured differently. We're going to you know that's going to be measured through these canopy studies done from aerial photography uh, over time. And so targets will be set. So targets are set for both. The targets for the canopy cover is is really just a coverage. It's a percentage coverage of a specific area. Um, that'll be the target. That you know if it's set at forty percent, which is what the official plan calls for, then then that's what we'll be looking to do. Say so, well, 
how many of these areas or residential areas where people are living, how many have actually have coverage of 40%. And then separately from that, how many residences, individual residences, have access to accessible green space, free public green space that they can walk to and use. So there's two aspects of green space. So in the case of the experimental farm, for instance, where they're looking to build the new hospital, yeah, what would be the catalyst of losing some of that green space? So there's a, that's a long, long story, and we were involved from the beginning of that story. Um, in a sense, it's kind of a uh, the result is uh, uh, kind of a a good and a bad thing. It's a bad thing because definitely it's going to take out of commission actual green space used by people. Uh, it's going to uh, result in the uh, destruction and removal of a number of trees uh, that are canopy providing trees, uh, mature trees, distinctive trees. Uh, and so uh, it's definitely a, a damaging to um, our green space resources. Uh, but it got there to be built on that location. Uh, that wasn't the first location it was to be built. It was supposed to be built right on the farm, right on the farm fields across from the current civic hospital. And so 50 acres of those open fields that look like open empty fields, but they're actually research fields where there's active research being performed there on an ongoing basis and some over decades uh, ongoing experiments because soil experiments are, are conducted on that part. And soil is something that only develops very, very, very slowly over, over decades. And so, um, so you know, our uh, big effort was to try and stop that development, not to have it built right on the farm, right on the research fields of the farm, uh, because we felt that the reason we still have the farm is because of the research program. If it wasn't for the research program, it's not because it's a nice heritage area that it would be preserved. It's not because it actually provides a massive amount of green space. That wouldn't be strong enough to preserve it. It'd be gone. It'd be developed a long time ago if it didn't have that research mission. And so we felt if we, if we couldn't stop that building of a new hospital on 50 acres of the actual research part of the farm, um, that, that was kind of the death knell for, and if they could do that, they can do anything on the farm. We would lose the farm. And so we feel the farm is a, a central, the farm is 900 acres, right? Like it, so it's huge central green space resource that benefits the whole city, benefits, ex, you know, especially all of the local neighborhoods, both in terms of access to green space and all, but largely in also in terms of cooling, there's lots of health and other uh, studies have been conducted to show that it has immediate effects on a large number of residents right around the farm. Uh, so it's a good, good for a bad. Like, yeah, we, we managed to, to actually, our activity, our, our advocacy along with heritage and science uh, interests uh, brought a change and, and, move and, and stopped that development right on the farm. Uh, then the process that it, it assessed and evaluated where else it might be built uh, resulted in having be built uh, at the Sir John Carling site, and so so there's there's a loss there too. On the other hand, Sir John Carling, it, you know, was there. It was a huge building that got blown up. Uh, so this is a, it's a brownfield. Uh, so are the properties right along Preston and Carling. Those are both brownfields. There used to be temporary government buildings on both of those parking lots on both of those both of those current NCC parking lot. So. Yeah, it's it's awkward. It's a difficult place to build it. It does take away some access to green space. 
but in the trade-off between building it right on the farm and building it there, in the end, we were reluctantly in a way, but saying, yeah, it's better there. Hmm. Now, I wanted to also ask you about wetlands. Why are wetlands important? So it's, uh, and, and good thing you bring that up because that's a huge part of our activity as well is around the preservation of wetlands. And, uh, and so wetlands in a way, in terms of ecological services, take regular green space, multiply by three, four, five, basically, for all the additional benefits. Uh, first off, with respect just to water management, just to flood control and absorption of water, storage of water, play a very, very, very important role in that, especially in our, you know, Ottawa's, uh, you know, Ottawa's on, on bedrock that's not very deep, right? And, uh, and it's, it's basically, a, you know, it's a, it's a swampy area. It was built in a swampy area. I think the first people who came this area built over on the Hull side for a, for a reason, you know, they didn't build on our side yet first. So, so the benefits for uh, stormwater, water management, recharge of aquifers, all kinds of water-related benefits are provided. Carbon capture, it's all green space as well. I mean, it's, you know, like whether it's reeds and other uh, type of aquatic plants, it still provides the same kind of benefits as, as, as any other green space uh, that we're concerned about protecting. And then all of the, the shorelines of all of the uh, wetlands also provide habitat, provide other types of uh, tree environments, biodiversity, huge, you know, in, in, in the wetland uh, context. So there, there's just like some a multiple of benefits that come from uh, the wetlands around Ottawa. And there are large, huge, uh, provincially significant wetlands around Ottawa and a number of other uh, not yet evaluated wetlands that are also very valuable. So that's definitely in our, in our scope of, of protection and preservation. So... In relation to, say, these uh, floods of the centuries that continue to happen a little yeah. bit more and more, yeah, what would be the reason for that? Well, I mean, we, we know the reason for the flooding, climate change, uh, but uh, maintaining healthy and plentiful wetlands gives you an ability to store that water, stock that water in a way that prevents the flooding, prevents the stormwater from just running across our, you know, rocky flat landscape, basically, for the most part. So so why wouldn't we make it a first priority to preserve them? Well, that, that I don't know. That's a, the, I think the development pressures are always there to build out. Most, if not all of these significant wetlands are in the rural area uh, of Ottawa. And so uh, there's always pressure, you know, for example, if, you know, if, you, if, if there was more pressure to build out at the edge of Stittsville, for example, you'd immediately be into the Goulburn Provincially Significant Wetland, a huge wetland complex there. Same thing around Leitrim, huge wetland complex around Leitrim. There's always pressure to be building out there. So there's always these hard boundary battles going on to try and redirect development away. Uh, or in the last official plan, we just took a stance that, we can actually accommodate the projected population growth strictly through intensification. We can actually do it all through intensification, and there was no need to expand the urban boundary at all. Great, that preserves all that stuff, that, you know, all of that green space and wetlands in the rural area along the current urban boundary. And so by intensification, you're saying, like, put people where we already have them. Yeah, 
you know, built, you know, more compact residential areas in the already built up part of the city, which includes the, the, the suburbs right through the inner part inside the Greenbelt, outside the Greenbelt. There's potential to create more density, more compact living, and at the same time create more interesting and more livable communities. And that, that's a position we were really developing in this current round of the official plan, along with lots of other partners. We were working with a broad coalition of organizations together to, to establish positions and recommendations around the official plan. If the population is going, going to grow by 40%, which is what the population projections uh, say over the next 25 years, this type of gentle intensification, if you want to call it that, it's just, but it's really neighborhood-focused intensification, could, it, could achieve that. We can actually get that 40% increase in population within this type. So there would be no need to push out into the urban, uh, push the urban boundary further out into the rural area. But like I said, I think it has the added advantage of you could take the opportunity to create much richer neighborhoods, much better suited neighborhoods to local living uh, and, and reduce the need to commute, reduce the need to travel by car, reduce the need to uh, cross the city every day for work by, by creating neighborhoods that are purposely thought of and planned that way. You know, and involving local communities, local groups working with the city, with the developers, with the environmental organizations to uh, figure out, OK, what's the what's the right pattern here? If, we, if, if we're going to do intensification here and we have a target for this neighborhood, how could we do that in a way that creates a better neighborhood for you, you know? So, so if you could reimagine neighborhoods along those lines, and of course our suburban neighborhoods were never imagined on that basis. They were imagined on a car world, right? I mean, that's how they got built. They got spread out all over the place, and they only made sense if you could drive into the city. Is there anything else you wanted to say? Oh well, uh, in the, you know, we I, I, I've spoken mostly of sort of large uh, type of uh, plans and actions, but. Uh, a lot of our activity is very local where, you know, we just get calls from people, email into, into the Green Space Alliance uh, reporting a threat that they see. You know, very recently we had people in uh, Sandy Hill uh, contact us saying uh, it looks like we might be losing a small park here called Bessemer Park. It's yes. just, you know, there's this little area here at the end of Bessemer Street, the dead end, and right next to Rito is a little tiny little island of green there. Uh, but a, a development firm was planning to ask the city to uh, punch through the park so as to give access to some parking, new parking that would be put there for a new uh, development there, a small uh, multi-unit building. Uh, so, so we got involved, you know, with the community. We 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 alerted all uh, you know other partners in our in our People's Official Plan Coalition, and it's a, it's a, you know, it's a lot of people. It's the Federation of Citizens and Associations, it's uh, the Community Associations for Environmental Sustainability, it's Ecology Ottawa, it's ourselves, uh, it's uh, Just Food, it's Healthy Transportation Coalition, it's uh, it's a, a Citywide All Women's Initiative, like it's a, it's, it's a, it's a big coalition. Uh, and I don't know, we, we, it made enough noise, it made enough, uh, of an issue that the developer changed the plan and decided to forego that parking. And so there'll be no loss of, uh, of that park. Uh, 
and, and so for us that's a win it's a tiny little park you know so it's not just all about these huge you know acreage that we need to protect it's also every little piece because for a neighborhood uh, that's important that's hugely important to have access to especially in a, in a very urban neighborhood like uh, like Sandy Hill or North Sandy Hill where this is so a lot of our activity is, is at that level as well a tree a single tree that's being uh, you know uh, slated for removal as part of a development infill development you know we'll get involved with that and try to make sure that every protection that's possible under the official plan and under the city's policies and bylaws are exercised to make sure we can preserve i mean if possible under the framework but often things get, just get done because people don't know they you know they don't know that there is protection and so before you know it boom that tree's gone and it's too late then you know so mm. so we're it, it's an ongoing thing uh, where there's a, a steady stream of uh, all kinds of threats to green space, local green space that, that we respond to regularly. So that's that's kind of the scope of our action. Thank you very much for your time today, Paul. You're very welcome. Thanks for taking an interest. Emma Williams is our science editor. She joins me now. Hey, Emma. Hi, Damien. What's new in science this week? So this week, I interviewed with Tuan Bui, a professor here at the University of Ottawa within the Department of Biology, and we discussed his research involving zebrafish. And uh, why zebrafish? So he used the zebrafish to better understand the human spinal cord. Oh, that's awesome. I can't wait to hear it. Enjoy. My name is Tuan Bui. Awesome. So, why zebrafish? <laughs> yeah, so my uh, main research interest is figure out how the spinal cord allows us to move. Uh, a lot of people don't realize, they just think the spinal cord is kind of like this uh, cheese string, you know, just like nerves coming down from the brain and then controlling our muscles or really information. But the truth is, there's a lot of nerve cells or neurons in the spinal cord. I would say in a human, there's hundreds of thousands of neurons. And what these neurons do is that they coordinate all the muscles uh, in our body and they basically translate commands from our brain. We want to reach for something, that command occurs somewhere in the brain and then sent down to the spinal cord and all these neurons take that and say, okay, well, these are the muscles we need to move to make that happen. So when someone has a spinal cord injury and they can't move because of the injury, it's because the neurons in the spinal cord don't get those commands from the brain anymore. But they're still there. So we just have to find a way how to reconnect them with the brain, but also figure out how do they work together so that um, we're in a better position to repair the spinal cord. So all that to come back to the zebrafish. So why why the zebrafish? It's because it's very hard to study a spinal cord in a human. You know, it's encased in the spine with this bony structure, and um, so it's really hard to re- to study individual neurons within a human spinal cord. But that's not an issue, the zebrafish. So the zebrafish, um, when it's developing, is transparent so that one can, under the microscope, see the nervous system as it's forming, including the spinal cord. So you can see the neurons being born, and you can see them wire together to start controlling the zebrafish's movements. And that's an amazing advantage uh, over other animal uh, models of the spinal cord is that you can see how it's developing. You can also, also almost see in some cases with the right tools, see it uh, active under a microscope. 
And then while it's growing and while its software is developing, and you can see this, Zerofish uh, is able to move really quickly. So within days of the egg being fertilized, uh, the zebrafish embryo and the larvae start swimming. So if you compare it to a human fetus, which takes months before a mother, you know, detects uh, leg kicks, um, zebrafish can do that within days of the animal being fertilized. So you're seeing the zebrafish spinal cord develop it. You're seeing how it's wiring together and you can uh, also see the zebrafish move. So, so you can correlate how it's wiring together to how it's starting to to move. Um, so that's why the zebrafish has become a, a really interesting model to study uh, movement uh, through the spinal cord. Okay, so if we could just go back, what sort of questions were you trying to answer through your study? I mean, we were really trying to figure out how the spinal cord works. The analogy I'll give you is, let's say you have a machine and it does a number of things, but you want to make it better. So you make it better by adding a new component. And so it, you, you understand what the new component does because you added it for that purpose. But we don't have that. We were trying to reverse engineer the nervous system. Okay. Uh, so we're doing it backwards. We're, we're saying, well, the, the zebrafish is going from knowing this movement to then learning this movement. What was added to the spinal cord to allow it to gain this new movement? And if you know this, if you figure out what exactly was changed in the spinal cord, then you can say, aha, that that new neuron, that new connection, the, its role is whatever new occurred. So, you know, if we found that a certain neuron, when the fish learns to turn, was added at that time, then it can't tell us, oh, well, that new neuron that was added as a fish learned to, to turn, maybe that's a neuron that's involved with turning. Um, what do you mean by signaling molecules? Yeah, that's okay. Signaling molecules are, um, so molecules a neuron would emit into the space surrounding it. Okay. And then, so, so you know, so nerve cells have part of the uh, nerve cell, I don't know if I have a drawing. Well, the nerve cells are often like a ball, which is a cell body, and then mm-hmm. it has a process, which is the axon, which is what wires to other neurons. Okay. Well, the, the axon during development has to figure out where it's going and who to talk to. Yeah. And so as it's growing, it kind of detects in its environment these different signaling molecule. So some signaling molecule may tell it to go to the left, some go to the right, and some will say, well, you've reached your destination. This is a cell you want to connect to. So these, so uh, during development, the nervous system and the neurons in it put out a bunch of signaling molecule that kind of tell all these growing axons, come here, come here, or don't go there. This is not where you want to be wired. So... So that's basically, they're just molecules, lots and lots of molecules that um, guide axons towards their final destination. When our own spinal cord is developing, what is actually happening there? Is it just like because we're using it more as we're like growing like that? But it's not like a muscle, so it's not like something that we can just like use and it gets stronger. <laughs> so I'm yeah. wondering... Yeah, so uh, so in the womb, you know, there's a lot of, of neurons being born, and they're, they learn to connect each other to yeah. control the muscles. And then uh, after birth, or well, during the later stages of, of development, uh, and then after birth, then you start having wiring with the brain and the brain stem, mm-hmm. because those are the places that will send the commands to the spinal neurons. 
So as a baby is, is learning to do these different things, uh, neurons in spinal cord are learning how to coordinate the different muscles. And then uh, we think that the brain is learning to connect to the right neurons in the spinal cord to make a particular movement. And then as you grow older and you learn new skills, let's say you're learning how to throw a frisbee, uh, then brain and the brain stem kind of figure out, okay, which are the neurons in the spinal cord I need to control or to, to activate and how best to make that due to activation to throw something correctly. Um, and, and, you know, as we learn these things and we get better and better, um, the brain and different regions of the brain figure out the best way to uh, control muscles through the spinal cord. So if, so the, the way the fish swim is that it beats its tail from one side to the other. And um, it do this, it has to make sure that when the tail beats to the right side, which I don't know if whether on your screen it's right or left, but uh, when it beats its tail to the right, the left side should be kind of silent. And okay. when it's done its left, its tail beat to the right side, it will have then to excite the other side so that the tail beat will occur on the other side. And that back and forth has to occur continually for the tail beat to occur. Otherwise, if both sides are active at the same time, the fish is kind of frozen because it can't choose one of the sides to beat towards. And the same thing when you and I walk. You know, when when I swing my right leg forward, my left leg has to support my weight to allow me to walk one limb at a time. Uh, and so it's the same idea. Like if both of my limbs were to be active at the same time, we'd be hopping instead of, of walking. So the zebrafish has to do the exact same pattern. It has to make sure that when one side is active, the other side is silent. And when it's time for the other side to be active, then the other side that was active has to become silent. <laughs> Does that make sense? Okay. So when they want to go right, then do they have to silence like they're, I guess if they're trying to go right? Uh, yeah, yeah, good question. You want to ask to turn. Yeah. So, uh, so turning is a bit more complicated. This is actually just this one forward. So this is okay. just forward. They, they have to continually beat the tail left and right, and that propels their body forward. Uh, turning is not something we had explored yet, but uh, it's slightly different. But it does require coordination of the right and left side, so you have the right amount of body bending to turn to one direction. Okay. Okay. And then from there... What are you looking for? So from there, we tried to see, you know, you know, do the uh, the theories about what each individual cell may do, does it actually come true in the model? And then we try to see how, you know, one cell population may uh, influence other cells in the way. Uh, so kind of get, get a sense of the, hier- the hierarchy of, you know, what cell population drives the rhythm and what cell population ensures that the animal is able to beat their tails continually. So, uh, you know, an analogy to how we walk, uh, because swimming is very similar to how we walk. So, you know, how when you and I walk, we have to move our legs. We have to coordinate the right side and the left side of the body so that it doesn't do the same thing so that we're not hopping around. You know, if, if the leg left and the right side were always doing the same thing, we'd be hopping like a kangaroo. So the zebrafish also has to coordinate the right and left side of its body so that the tail can beat so it can swim. Uh, and so we figure out which, uh, how that coordination occurs. And we also identified one cell population which hadn't been really studied in depth, which we think is really important to ensure that tail beat, uh, of the zebrafish is continued 
so that it can propel itself for a certain distance. That hadn't been described before. So can we talk a bit more about the results then of your study or maybe some discovery that you didn't think you were going to see? Yeah. So um, I, one thing I had failed to mention was that uh, what we had done is we produced three different models. Okay. Um, as zebrafish grow, they show a transition between three different movements. Kind of like how a baby, when a baby's developing, you know, at first it just it can only kind of move its legs in the air, and then eventually it's able to support its weight, but kind of still stumble around, and eventually it's able to actually walk. So the same thing for a zebrafish. At first, it just does these what are called coiling, which is like these do these massive body bends, but they only have a single body bend at a time, uh, and then eventually they do two body bends, so one to one side and one to the other side. So it's kind of a precursor to eventually swimming. And then eventually they're able to learn, okay, well, if I do these little quick little tail beats from one side to the other, then I can propel myself forward. And what we had done was that we model for each of those. So single coiling, double coiling, and then uh, successive amounts of different tail beats to allow them to swim forward. Mm -hmm. And what we have found is that uh, as we're constructing these models, the, the initial one, the, the earliest one, which is a single tail uh, coil, a body bend, uh, required only a small number of neurons. And as we try to model the, the more and more uh, mature movements, so the more skillful movements, we had to add new neurons to the mix. Uh, and so we think that that kind of indicates that when we're learning to walk, the spinal cord starts integrating more and more neurons to allow mm -hmm. us to um, walk properly. And the, the wiring of these neurons have to change to, uh, to allow us to do, to acquire new motor skills. So, so basically the, our, our main conclusion at the end was that as the animal learns to new skills, it has to integrate new neurons and its wiring has to change. And the way each neuron, because neurons fire ash potential. So the way each neuron fires ash potential has to, uh, change as well for us to uh, become, uh, learn new motor skills. Okay. So when you mean integrate new neurons, how does that happen? Is that just something the brain just knows how to do? So that's a really good question as to how the, yeah, how new or how mature circuits occur. Um, so uh, we think that as neurons are born and they are integrated into the nervous system, there are signals that are sent, which kind of guide uh, growing axons towards new targets. Uh, okay. So that's how the nervous system knows how to uh, make new connections, is it follows these uh, signaling molecules, um, which guide different axons to different targets. So, um, so it has to do a bit of the genetic code, but also experience. Um, so as the animal experiences an external world or as it learns new motor skills, different signaling molecules are uh, guide the growing of axons and the formation of new connections. So thank you so much for meeting with me. This is all very interesting. And uh, Well, thanks thank for you. your time. I appreciate the invitation. Here with the latest of what's happening with the GGs is the Fulcrum Sports Editor, Jasmine McKnight.
let's just jump right in and start with the surprises. I can't say I expected the women's soccer team to lose, especially in the playoffs. That said, Queens was definitely their strongest matchup during the regular season. The 2-0 OUA semifinal game against the Gales did not go in the favor of GGs despite their undefeated season. It's genuinely hard to see the top dogs of the division not even have the opportunity to make a showing at the national championship competition next week. The women's rugby team also suffered a playoff loss, this one in the RSEC championship game, a game they've won for the past six years. It seemed that not much had changed from the regular season to playoffs. The GGs still couldn't beat Laval. Even though the team suffered a loss there, they are now at the Youth Sports National Championship Tournament in Kingston and have already defeated St. FX in their first game. Our last playoff showing of the week was the G's football team. I must admit, the last thing I expected was for the guys to come out so strong and take down Toronto 27-17. The team is headed to OUA semifinals, where they're going to match up against Queens. On the court, the GG's basketball teams hosted York on Friday and Saturday. The U of O is leaving their opening weekend with only wins under their belt. The women had scores of 76-52 and 48-44, while the men won 80-76 and 92-51. This weekend, the teams are on the road against Ontario Tech. Gigi's hockey had a decent weekend. The women's team dropped one to McGill 4-1, but came out on top 5-2 against Bishops. The men had a solid performance to defeat McGill 5-3. The women are hosting Montreal while the men are on the road tonight. Both teams are at home on Sunday to host Concordia. The women start things off at 2 and the men face off at 7. I'll be spending my time watching the live stream of the rugby championships before migrating to the Minto Sports Complex to catch our hockey teams in action. Make sure you look at the sports section of the Fulcrum or follow InstaFulcrum Sports to see all the results. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone involved in this week's show. Thank you to our arts editor, formerly known as Zofka Zvek. Thank you to the master of the highlight reel. Jasmine McKnight and Emma Williams is the only person who can make science sound easy music and sound design by the great Cameron Rankin You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. 
I'm your host, Damian Piper. See you next week. <laughs>